Welcome to The Ledge. My name is Chris Harper, and I'll be your host every week. Every Tuesday, I will interview an artist, developer, or creative mind from the Web3 space. I'll be getting up close and personal with my guests as we explore the emerging crypto art and NFT scene. It is my feeling, along with many others, that we are in a digital renaissance. The emergence of blockchain technology has revolutionized the way we look at ownership, provenance, and digital assets. It is my goal as your host to help shed light on these complex subjects, and even more so, the individuals behind it all who are carving out their place in history here on the ledge of Web3. Thank you all for joining me on another episode of The Ledge. I'm here this morning with Kenny Schachter. Kenny is an artist, a writer, a podcaster, an art critic, and amongst a lot of other things that I've read about you online. How are you this morning, Kenny? Pretty good. Thank you. And you? I'm doing quite well. Thank you uh, for coming on and spending some time talking to me. I appreciate it. Will you just introduce yourself, like name, age, where you're from, where you live, anything age, about yourself you want to say? <laughs> I'm old. I, I'm Kenny Schachter. I'm based now in New York. I was in UK for about 15 years and moved back four years ago. I've been in the art world for, I mean, I, could, I can go on for two hours just from that question. I've been in the art world for over three decades. I think what colors... Everything I do is the fact that I'm completely self-taught in art. So even though I'm pretty up to my eyeballs in the art world, uh, I'll always consider myself an outsider because whatever position I have, I've clawed my way to get there. A lot of people will criticize me and say, like, I wield some kind of power or something like that, which is, if you look at my bank balance, you'd see what a fallacy that is. But the fact is that, you know, it's I've been working towards all, whatever I'm doing and how I do it for, for the last 30 years without taking much time off, not because I'm such a workaholic. It's just that art is the only thing that I care about, aside from my kids. Sometimes I prefer art. So really, I do. I, I mean, what is art? Art is about self-expression and communication. So within that rubric... That encapsulates everything I do, from making work to lecturing. I'm a professor at University of Zurich and a few other schools, and I'm always intermittently lecturing. And uh, yeah, writing, lecturing, and making art is pretty much the crux of the most important aspects of what I do. How I make a living is another story, which I'm still trying to figure out. How old I am? Oh, 61, going on 12. <laughs> but I'm a late, I'm a late bloomer. I'm very immature. I'm a late bloomer. I have a very look. Art is also for me about curiosity, and I just love to learn. And then I love what makes me stand out in the art world is that, like, you call me up. I don't know you. You ask to speak, and I'm appreciative yeah. of you wanting to hear me. And I think it's very important, very unusual, to just share information and you know to share information and how to help people and give them insight on how to achieve the things they want to achieve. Well, that's a, that's a mouthful. That's a lot. <laughs> you just said. You asked me. Yeah. You asked no, me. I did it. I appreciate that, man. And uh, I, you know, a lot of things I can relate to. I'm 51, so I'm 10 years younger than you. And my, uh, 
my wife likes to say I'm a 16 year old trapped in a 51 year old body. So I get yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. You've, uh, you probably forgotten more about our art than most people will ever know. From what I can see your writings and critic critiques of artists and uh, galleries and all kinds of things. You just, you seem like you have a, a lot of information um, where, where did you grow up and how did you, where, like, what was your background? Like, where'd you come from? Well, part of the problem is that problem, um, which defines who I am today is that I, I'm from Long Island, which even though it's only 17 miles from where I'm sitting literally now in New York city, it could be a gulf of a million miles because yeah. I was born up in the suburbs, very alienated, miserable childhood. And I was overweight and I had a speech impediment. I, I stuttered. And so I, I'm, I could barely even, I couldn't speak in public, to be frank. Oh, and man. I think that also accounts for the fact why I never shut up now. And I've done so many, <laughs> so much lecturing and, and podcast, et cetera. But I had no interest, really, because I was, I mean, verging on verge, catatonic, I didn't speak much. My mother passed away when I was uh, 13. And my parents, I, I always hear these stories about, uh, you know, kids that were brought to galleries and museums and nurtured and affirmed by their parents. Well, I had nothing of the sort. <laughs> I mean, my dad was not the kindest person and he was absentee. And I had to fend for myself. So while I was holed up in my while I was holed up in my room, uh, alienated, which was fine with me because I preferred it, I guess, which is the same now. I had this wall in my bedroom that was made out of cork, and I used to rip magazines and and collage them on my wall, things that interested me in a manner in which, like, I just re re expressed these the original configuration or recontextualized these images. And in a way, I'm doing the same exact thing now in my art, which is, you know, we're so inundated with so much. I prefer to use a lot. I'm inspired by the things around me more than things that emanate out of my imagination. So it's really a mixture of how I reinterpret what's around me. And that becomes the basis of, of my art. What was the first thing in your life that you can remember that you created you would call art? Jesus. <laughs> um, well, I study philosophy, and for me, that really is the underlying core of of where my artistic efforts go from, without saying the word practice to avoid the pretentiousness of how that sounds. But for me, art was always a kind of expression of some ideational thought, some idea. And so... I went to law school just because I had a philosophy, undergraduate philosophy degree. In no way did I want to add to the pool of horrific lawyers that tend to make our lives more miserable than it already is. But I went there just to hide. I never went to school. I lied about being in night school. There was no night school. And I worked a series of full-time jobs basically to find out what I didn't want to do with my life rather than what I did want to do. But after law school, I was procrastinating between jobs. I worked in the finance business. I wanted to do something creative and entrepreneurial, so I tried fashion. 
But as you could see, that was a bit of a disaster. I was like Willie Loman lugging ginormous suitcases across the <laughs> East Coast, uh, fanning out neckwear to mom and pop men's shops selling ties. Anyway, and then when I when I went to Warhol's estate sale in uh, spring of 1988, that was the first time in my life when I was between 26 and 27 that I witnessed or became aware of the fact that you could sell art. I never yeah. saw art until I was in university. Then I went to the East Wing of the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., designed by I.M. Pei and saw contemporary art. And I guess it really kind of um, entered into my subconscious and re remained dormant for some years. And when I went to Warhol's estate sale just to kill time, I was completely taken aback by the fact that not only were they selling his extraordinary collection, collections, everything from cookie jars and watches and assorted crap to his insane art collection, which he had mostly cultivated through trades with people like Twombly, Hockney, Rauschenberg, Johns, and all these amazing fine artists. And then Sotheby's was gearing up for its bi-yearly at that time spring art auction. And a lot of the art I had seen in the museum in D.C. was being hung on the walls for an impending sale. And that was absolutely revelatory. But anyway, mm -hmm. after that, I, I immediately started to make art. And back to your question, which somehow I still remember having quit drugs and alcohol about four years ago. I'm much <laughs> able, capable of doing something like that, which is, I remember, like, again, just like I would use existing imagery and um, ideas. I went to a hardware store and bought a bunch of junk and then made some kind of a 3D collage out of these objects. And I would literally stick the art under my bed and just <laughs> whirl it away under my bed. And then I started curating exhibitions Mainly, like I teach to learn, I write to think harder about mundane things that I experience in the art world, and I curated shows as a way, because as an outsider, who by nature of the way I look and dress, I was barely, literally allowed through the threshold of the door <laughs> of, of exclusionary, hierarchical, hypocritical art galleries, which we can come back to, because that really is the basis of all my writing to this day, but... I curated shows to find a way to have my art seen amongst my peers. And I started curating shows and introduced the work of artists that had no gallery affiliation. I call them emerging artists. They could have been, you know, 20 or 100. And many of them were between 20 and 760, 70. But I showed artists like Cecily Brown, who has a show at the Metropolitan Museum now, Wade Guyton who is famous for making paintings out of a giant computer printer that sell into the millions sometimes. Wow. Joe Bradley, who shows with David Werner, a whole host of artists. I had really just exercised my the muscle of my eyes by training them to really look and look and look in the heart. The more you look, the more you see. So I trained myself from in art history, through teaching, and in fine art making through the art of my peers and learning all about it. That's pretty cool that you were at the Andy Warhol um, estate sale. Did you get anything? Did you pick up anything? Are you, you crazy? <laughs> I mean, Basquiat literally were going for 25 grand a pop. The same paintings would be like 20 million, yeah. 100 million now. Uh. I literally, <laughs> you can never pick up 
if you go to Amazon or whatever, eBay, you could find the Warhol estate catalogs. It's six catalogs in a box. And I'm sure you can find it pretty cheap. It's one of the most elucidating, extraordinary documents of the time to page through. It's fantastic. Wow. It has a drawing of Warhol by David Hockney on the cover. You and me were in the same place at the same time. We were at both at the Beeple Grand Opening. Oh, cool. And then I yeah. reviewed that and he was none too happy about I mean, I had two videos in his in his exhibition and then I I wrote about it in the same way I write about anything. A little bit critical, but always with love and passion and humor, which sort yeah. of disarms people from my words. And yeah. uh yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, what'd you think? <laughs> well, I mean, there, there are parts I really like. It's like this kind of um, edifice, this monument to, you know, self-wrought, self-creation. I mean, I think some of the most important ingredients of, of, of a successful person in any field is uh, doggedness, perseverance, and tenacity. And people, what I love about him as a creator is with his everydays, he made these artworks for years and never sold any of them. He only yeah. sold his first artwork like three years ago. And I right. love like not being daunted by the fact that no one sees what you see. And, and that yet that doesn't get in the way of your pursuit of, you know, your interest. So, I mean, to this day, my, I, I, I sold a bunch of NFTs. I had a decent run, relatively speaking. And then it came to a bit of a halt. And now I'm lucky to sell the same NFTs I was selling for like 20 grand for $200. But that will, and I've had an art dealer that I picked up through the success of my NFT work telling me like my latest sculpture was bad art. But like none of that fuels me. None of that will ever dissuade me from pursuing like the things that I feel compelled to do. So I think what I, back to your question, like I like the fact that people just carried on doing what he was doing uh, yeah. in the face of no commercial remuneration for what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. He's, what do you think to, uh, about people who compare uh, Andy Warhol and people? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's hard. You know, I don't really know how fruitful that is. Right. I think that these things are interesting on a certain level, but... Right. You know, I think I think, you know, there's a continuum of art history and you could relate various artists to the artists that came before them. Yeah. But I don't I in a million years, you could put me into people's studio and leave me there locked in for weeks. And Andy Warhol would not be the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> fair enough. OK, fair enough. I did uh, become I became aware of you uh, quite a while ago when you had uh, you had some things dropping on Nifty Gateway. Uh, I remember one thing that you produced, which I thought was kind of weird. It was like a, a brain cell flying out of your head or something. And you were like banging yourself on the head. <laughs> <laughs> was, what the hell is this? I just become aware of NFTs at the time and I just didn't understand it. Now I, I do. I have a, now that I've done a little research on you and I understand NFTs and this whole art scene a little better. It makes more sense to me. It's like a little performance art. I'm trying to remember what exactly I was thinking with that work. <laughs> Did you have any art education? You said you were all self-taught. You didn't have yeah. any education. I mean, basically, in the beginning of my life, education was, was pain. 
was I literally, I mean, I was left back in the first grade, which you have to be all but incapable of absorbing any information. You have back in a grade where, you know, abstract thinking is not even called into play. So right. I would just bring something. I had some kind of an attention issue and I would literally bring something to occupy myself during the course of every school day, one little toy, one little object. And that was, that would be what I would focus on. But um, so I, I really was, I mean, I had no interest until I went to university. For me, education was always like a form of punishment. I would perform poorly in school and then I would literally get punished by my, my dad and orders on, you know, mean spirited. And, yeah. um, and other than that, like when I went to university, I stumbled into a philosophy course and that was the first time in my life where there was an affirmation, an affirmative experience from reading, digesting, thinking, and reprocessing the information. How did you end up in the UK? I know you lived well, in yeah, the UK. Yeah, my orientation. I had zero. So I never took an art class in my entire life. When I went to law school, I was certain that practicing law was never going to be uh, an interest or an option in my life. But it was a good place to hide from the marketplace to give me more time to think. And if anything, I learned this kind of uh, military training of diligence for the mind on how to focus. And in my writing and my teaching, I have I have two major lectures coming up in Zurich um, in June, which today's June 1st. So a little bit later in the month, I have, I have a, anyway, so um, while I was in law school, uh, I took a drawing class and a, at one point, which I attended probably for the first three classes for uh, new life drawings. And then I took a sculpture class again, which I went to for a few few classes. But nice. the first art history class I ever took in my life, I was teaching where I conned my way into a teaching job at the new school, drank a few Budweiser's beforehand, and then regurgitated in my own inimitable way the three chapters that I had read prior to my prior to my lecture. What about computers? Did you have any computer exposure? That's a really cool question. Yeah. I mean, I to this day, I mean, I think part of the lore or the rationale for having kids are as an intermediary between you and your devices. And <laughs> they have such an innate facility to, to understand and, and work with computers. But for me, the way that art is always a reflection of our social, political, and economic times by the same token, pun intended, uh, art reflects, it should reflect technology on some level because that shapes the times that we live in today more than ever before than any single time in history. And yeah. I was always... I was one of these, you always hear these stories like, oh, when my kid was young, they took apart the fill in the blank, the laptop, the radio, the TV, and put it back together. Right. I was the one right. who took things apart and then lost interest and left them in shards and pieces broken. So I remember back in the 70s, the first computers that came into existence for a more domestic setting were like heat kits. They were kits for you to hobbyists to build 
rudimentary computers in their home. And that was pretty much, I would gather, what like inspired um, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, probably more Wozniak, to build the first home computers spraying from this hobby hobbyist option being the first time that you could bring. I remember like my dad worked in a carpet business, a retail carpet company. And I remember going into the computer room, which was as big as a football field filled with like, you know, literally a football field's worth of mainframe computers, which today you wouldn't even, you'd need like not even a new laptop, but an old laptop. Anyway, so when I was in law, when I was in law school back in, I graduated in 80, 87 from law school. I While I was in law school, I bought an IBM desktop with a floppy disk before there was uh, laptops. And I just interfaced, I wanted to just interface with the device. And I used it to retype like a thousand pages of notes because although I never went to class, Literally, I took the bar exam. I had to, I was responsible for memorizing. I'll never forget because it was so awful an experience and traumatic, like 1,100 pages of notes. And I retyped 1,100 pages using word processing. And in a way, like people have to understand, like word processing in the 80s was like using AI chat GPT today. It was a new way that colored the way you actually composed a paragraph and a sentence. Yeah. So I always loved, I can never really understand technology and I would much rather work with an assistant to effectuate some of my animations than do it myself because I think my time is better spent reading and studying and writing. But yeah, I just love technology as a cultural manifestation of human nature. When did you become uh, cognizant of NFTs? When did that come into your world? It was in the fall of 2020. So I wasn't earliest and I was more early than late. But as I showed my first digital animation video in 1993 in an exhibition, of course, I curated because no one to this day, like, I don't, I mean, I have an exhibition at an NFT gallery called the NFT Gallery in New York City that runs through June 17th in New York. And then I have a museum exhibition in Austria in September. But again, like I, I curated my own exhibitions and in some of the earliest ones, I made computer animation. Then I made sort of quasi narrative videos shot on miniature digital uh, cassettes. So I always, I always made the fodder of what would be NFTs but the minute I heard those, I was never a proponent of, of blockchain or a fan of Bitcoin because I'm the worst money person you've ever spoken to. I've made uh-huh. some in my life. Right now I have like, you know, three grand in my account and that's not counting the ginormous amounts of debt that I have. So Bitcoin held no interest for me on any level. And as a result, nor did the blockchain because I just associated it with yet another form of money that I would never be able to have. And then I was with a friend back in September of 2020, and um, they mentioned NFT. And as someone who wasn't interested in blockchain, really, I just associated blockchain with Bitcoin, and I wasn't interested in the new digital kind of money, mainly for the fact that I'm only interested in art and things that have a practical 
bearing for a use case for my life, which is art. So when I found out about NFTs, although I didn't understand the underlying technical notion of the blockchain and the uh, decentralized network of computers and buying art that had no um, material uh, essence or you know physical aspect, I made videos and manipulated computer imagery since the 90s. So two things immediately appealed to me about NFTs. Number one was the art world always pays lip service to developing new audience to collect art because most of the art collectors at the high end are rich old white guys. So the idea of a, of, of a new audience of potential supporters of art in any form was immediately appealing to me. And the second thing was a way to make a couple of bucks. So it was Olive Allen, the artist, who mentioned this to me while we were, funny enough, going to bricks and mortar art galleries in Chelsea in New York City. And she said, I know I work with a company called Nifty Gateway. Would you like to have some of your work translated into, into NFTs? So I said, sure. I wasn't going to say no to any potential opportunity to disseminate my work. And... Tommy Kimmelman, who studied like business at Stanford, was the chief operating officer, was moonlighting as the curator. I use that term lightly uh, in at Nifty Gateway. And he onboarded me and I sold like three small editions and I made four thousand dollars and I was nice. elated. I mean, that was four thousand dollars more than I thought yeah. I was going to make. And I immediately started writing about it, evangelizing about it and continuing my foray into the. Are you still as bullish on NFTs as you were in the beginning? Has your has your uh, view expanded over the last couple of years? I think I mean literally now one day of my life has been the same since that fateful day back in fall of 2020. Yeah, I agree. And <laughs> um, I did a PFP. I did a PFP series that was a satire on all the apes, penguins, and punks called crypto mutts. I devised this term NFTism, which had to do with this great sense of community conversations that were emanating that I never had in decades in the contemporary art world when it sank into a morass of, you know, money and economics and greed and 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 collaborations where like working with people, working on shows together, literally working with other artists. And I got the word NFTism tattooed on my arm and I copyrighted it as like a conceptual hijinks. Not with, I mean, in the end, I dropped the copywriting as a joke. Anyway, and then I say within like a period of less than two years, the NFT world copied the very worst attributes of the fine art market. Everything was a cash grab, a stupid popularity contest as to who became the most successful. And it literally was a mirror version of the worst attributes of the art world. But whereas it took the art world maybe like a few hundred years to get to that point, everything in technology happens at with such rapidity and velocity. One year in tech is 15 years in real life, like dog years. So within two years, the NFT, NFTism for me became post-NFTism. So I changed my tattoo <laughs> to post-NFTism. <laughs> I can give some of your tattoos a run for the money. <laughs> this one we we don't have to see, but you could just read it. <laughs> I see, I see, I see. I did live in the UK where that word has a different meaning, and now it means something altogether different, even 
amongst the kids yeah. in New York. But anyway, so um, yeah, so I yes, I apps in well, let's put it this way: I have made digital art for thirty three years. So I love. I live in twenty twenty three more or less, and. I during COVID, I clocked 16 hours and seven minutes of screen time on my phone alone. And I made a painting of it. And I was like, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I was quite proud. That's a personal best of 16 hours. And the rest of the time, without a few hours for sleep, I was probably on my laptop. But, you know, as much as, you know, looking at life through a screen is no substitute for living life. I, I remember like years ago, I would lecture that like I bought a trash can off Amazon and it came the size of a thimble. And when you're buying a garbage can, you don't normally check the size of it. You assume you're gonna get a garbage right. can that can hold more than one piece of crinkle paper. Right. And that really explains like even digital art, not seeing a gigantic screen, like the greatest new Samsung LED technology in a space that's the size of a billboard, you can't, you know, capture that same visceral uh, experience by looking at your phone. So the fact is, yes, to answer your question, I'm very, very excited about some, I'm doing a project with Async, which is a dynamic evolutionary NFT that changes over time with 20 collaborators, you know, some wonderful people like Krista Kim. What's that called? Open Book. Yeah, I've been seeing that. I just literally said to 20 cool people from Kevin Albash and operated these two women that collaborate together, Sarah Mayoas, a whole group of disparate artists, Osanachi, all kinds of really cool people, and asked them to do exactly what we're talking about. Tell me what you like about NFTs, which we'll call NFTism, and tell me what you hate about NFTs, NFTs which, which, which we'll call post-NFTism, and then give me a representative image from from for each position, and that constitutes a book where you can literally cherry pick your the chapters of your own book. But even more interesting is the fact that will be the next phase will be accepting contributions from anyone that wants to participate, and then everyone's book will be airdropped with pages, so your book will never complete. How could you write? I was asked to co-write a book on NFTs by a scholar from Cambridge, and I, it was the most daunting awful experience I ever had because a book is something that has an ending and NFTs change before you finish the the first chapter. Right. (laughs) Well, yeah, I love NFTs. I love art. So for me, NFTs are a subset of art. And when the NFT, when the smart contract uh, starts to become the content, then you have NFT art. But even the very fact of the first like systematized mechanism for buying and selling digital stuff is a paradigm shift in the history of art. It's a new way to sell these videos and and digital works that I've been making since 93. So people say things like the digital art revolution, the crypto art movement, um, all these, um, you know, things. Do you feel that we are in, in a... In a Look, I'm the hair standing up. When I think about... I get that too, Kenny. I do too, man. I've I've had that feeling since day one. It gives me the goosebumps, man. It's like... Uh, I just got it. It's so... I feel like <laughs> such a freak. But when you just said those things, that that... I've been making this crap since 1993... 
I made giants right. of the Prince in the yeah. mid-90s when this guy, Wei Guyton, was in my show. He was showing, like, he didn't even have a computer printer. Now he's made, like, tens of millions of dollars, and I'm still on square one. But, you know, God bless him. I don't care. Yeah. But, like, it's digital art has always been the poor, shitty, hillbilly cousin of the paintings and sculpture. Right. And, right. like, you know, I remember selling videos on a USB, and I don't even know what fucking videos are on the USB. I put it in a little box to make it look like art with a little emblem on it. But it was like yeah. a movie. And, like, so for me, we live in a digital revolution. I'm trying, because I'm so fucking broke right now, I'm trying to refrain from this impulsivity to buy the art of my peers or the art that interests me. But thankfully, yeah. the last purchase, I made two last purchases, like, a few months ago before I put a moratorium on any further yeah. spending to like dig myself out of this hole. And the, and it's funny enough, there were two little drawings by an artist called Travis Smalley, who, I mean, he's made some extraordinary NFTs and he's, he made these like digital rugs, which are really well known in the NFT community. But like he has a, he's, he considers himself more like a digital artist than an NFT person. And I bought two amazing, like, schematic... Dr the drawings look like a schematic rendering of the inside of a computer chip. And then I bought two photographs from 1967 by Gottfried Jaeger, one of the pioneers of employing technology and wedding it with art. Herbert Franke, um, um, more... What's it, you know, there's a whole generation of um, Vera Molnar, a whole generation of artists from the 50s and 60s that are the four fathers and mothers of the digital world, the digital art world we live in today. So to coexist with like a 1953 computer-generated uh, photographic work from Herbert Franker really puts my life into an amazing perspective of where we yeah. are today. And I think like you know, the reason I got, I started teaching art was when I decided the, the day I went to Warhol's estate sale in April of 88, I had an epiphany and I made a determination to live my art in the fine art sector. And the day I found out about NFTs, I did the same about, you know, and about crypto art. So for two years, I quit writing for Artnet except for half a dozen features on NFTs. I quit doing the thing that 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 helped me attain whatever notoriety I have. Yeah. To focus and relearn my life in relationship to understanding the blockchain and the history of crypto. Yeah, I was going to say you are uh, you you're a pretty prolific uh, art critic from what I could see through your uh, through your link through your socials. I was going doing a little research on you. I mean, you've written a lot of articles, and some of them are pretty harshly critical of the art world. <laughs> I mean, the art world has its own fucked up brand of hypocrisy. Yeah. And like before, before I got involved in the art world, I had this vi romantic vision of like everyone drinking absinthe, getting <laughs> wasted and singing from the chandelier and then right. going to an orgy. And the art world remains the most conservative. I've been working in a law firm because I somehow managed to pass the bar exam. <laughs> I've been as mentioned, a fashion, fashion sales salesperson. I worked on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. I worked as a photography assistant after law school. Anything I can to forge a life in the world of art. 
I was, I'm, I've been an art dealer and all of these things, but nothing prepared me for how conservative the art world is in relationship to other other worlds. Why do other you think it's like that? Is it just because of money? Is that what it is? Or It's mainly because the art world, even at between 65 and 70 billion a year, it's still a relatively small industry in relationship to like Apple Computer makes that much money at lunch. Right. So it, it, the art world operates on a zero sum basis, which is one person excels or succeeds at the direct expense of another person. Uh, so one artist gets a gig at the expense of another artist. You know, one collector gets a trophy at the expense of another trophy or a museum right. where the work would probably be better better situated. So I just think the art world is very territorial, very petty. I say in the art world, they stab you in the front. Then you have dinner with them because you can't afford to alienate anyone you could do a deal with. Right. And uh, and the art world is very snotty and hypocritical and exclusive because when you're spending tens of thousands or millions of dollars on something which looks like a drunk monkey could have done it, you have to create this uh, this 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 context or this this environment, this clinical, sterile, you know, universal monolithic gallery interior which is the same on any continent on the planet from Asia, Africa, anywhere in the world, galleries look the same. They're all keep the same hours, basically. Most of them are closed on Sundays when everyone is actually free and have the time to visit galleries, but that's the day they're closed because they want to avoid the casual tire kicker. Right. And they're looking for the bucks. I got you jump to the world of digital art, crypto art, uh, NFTs, all that. I mean, you you live in New York. You were probably at NFT New York. I'm, I read you were at Art Basel. You've been to some of these like crypto art artist events. It's it's pretty cool, man. I mean, from my own personal experience, you know, uh, at these events, they've been very welcoming. People are very helpful. Um, you know, it feels it feels really like friendly. I don't know. Maybe that's different than the normal. Well, I think NFT NYC is a farce. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the equivalent of a of a pudgy penguin, stupid like a moonbirds now is getting blasted yeah. from being nothing more than a cash grab from day one. Right. In the guise of like are, some kind of. When you say NFT NYC, are you talking about like the actual convention itself, like that part of it? Yeah, the convention. Yeah. I mean, look, the convention brings extraordinary events ancillary events in every city it goes to yeah but margin six hundred dollars a ticket or whatever it is or fifteen hundred for a vip you get nothing no i agree with you it's totally stupid i i I went the first year to it and it was totally stupid i i uh but i we go to my wife and i love going to nft nyc and going to all the outside events next time you come come to my house i definitely will yeah Anyone who listens to this, anyone who listens to me without falling asleep in a deep catatonic state, um, you can DM me or send me on Twitter a message. I return every single message. I'm always trying to, you know, if there's anything I can do to help anyone, I do it. You know, well, I, 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 I appreciate that, Kenny. Thank you so much for uh, responding quickly. I, I message a lot of artists that don't respond to me at all. <laughs> so yeah. when I get people that say yes and are willing to be, come on here and speak to me, I, I very much appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. 
But um, anyway, that NYC, like, and they should call it like very idiotic proposition to pay fifteen hundred bucks for, a, and like you get ten minutes to talk. That's that's that's. I learned James. that the hard way, man. The first year, I didn't pay for the event. The second year, we just showed up in New York, and I mean, I made my proposal. I've spoken at every single one in New York. I was invited by the owner the first time. By the third time, they asked me for proposal, and I said, "Why I hate NFT NYC." That's all I wrote. Do you know who G Money is? Do you know G Money? Yeah, I like literally. I introduced I. He met Justin Aversano yeah. and they collaborated together through my Instagram account, funny enough. Dave Money's a great guy. And he this year at NFT NYC, he had like this as this scavenger hunt. And if you want it, if you want it, you got an unminted chromy squiggle, which is worth like 20 grand. So that's what we spent our whole time on that scavenger hunt. And it was a lot of fun, man. Because <laughs> we were like going all over New York. We went to tons of galleries. We went to a bunch of parties. It was a lot, you know, it was just like a lot of cool people, a lot of artists. It's just like the Basel Art Fair. Like when there's a Basel Art Fair, there's 25 ancillary simultaneous events. And really that's what you, that's what we're searching for. Yeah. Connections with, yeah. Other, yeah. with other like-minded people. So in that regard, yeah. it's a great thing to bring people to London, Paris, New York, or wherever else it goes to. And to forge these relationships are really what this is all about. Yeah. What do you think about this period in, in crypto art history from 2017 to 2023 that's like pre-AI? Have you thought about it from that perspective? No, because I just think AI is, I mean, AI has been around that whole time. It's evolutionary like everything else. Yeah. I mean, in the same way, photography for 100 years was rejected as an art form. Photography was considered to be like an aberration in, you know, human modes of representation. It was considered like cheating that you're capturing an image with that with little or no human intervention or creativity. Right. And I just, you know, what really makes me laugh is like all these fucking idiots like up in arms about this demonic, you know, <laughs> nefarious effects of chat GPT and AI we're doing a pretty good job ourselves of destroying the universe. Just the amount of shootings in America yeah. uh, in the first half of the year exceeded all of last year, pretty much, or close to it. And I mean, people are worried about a software. I mean, artificial intelligence is a misnomer. It's people that, you know, that program these, these this, this whole parameter of these, you know, machine learning capabilities if anyone's going to create some downfall to humanity, it's not going to be the computers on their own getting together and creating this, like, you know, this cabal of, 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 of negativity that will destroy the world. We're going to do it to ourselves like we always do. Right. We're a horrible species that's capable of some of the most affecting and beautiful gestures. And making art is one of the things, the main differentiators that separate the species of humans from any in the animal kingdom. But yet we also are capable of the worst atrocities imaginable that animals would never commit to each other. So, you know, yeah. AI and chat GPT, I've used it for various things already. I interviewed um, Richard, Richard Chen, the one of the founders of Manifold. And this was already like six, eight months ago. And he was using, chat gpt every day instead of 
um, Google or various other search engines. Yeah. So these 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 are anytime something. The whole reason why the traditional art world hates NFTs with vengeance is the same reason that everyone is freaking out about AI. Anytime something new comes along, it's human in human nature to recoil, not only pull back but push back and 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 reject something because they don't take the time to really you know fully understand it and appreciate the upside to it. So I've used ChatGPT. I used it to tongue-in-cheek write two paragraphs in the vein of my writing, which I then rewrote, but I thought it was really funny, and it came up with two jokes that I was envious of and tried to get away with taking credit for, but my editor flagged them and and, um, highlighted the fact that those two jokes were not mine. In (laughs) fact, they were written by ChatGPT in relationship to Freeze Art Fair in Los Angeles. And then I used it to help name this latest video game project I did with a British platform called Data. And that was called Pop Principle, which is like <laughs> the it. principle of pop art mixture with a mixture with, you know, art as a popularity contest and the way success affirms success in the art world and the NFT world. And one artist does a, a, a popular project and then everyone wants to you know, Avon and Cottonard to something that was already successful. I've been using chat GPT to write rap battles between pop culture figures. That's cool. <laughs> I did one yesterday. And why e- that? Elon that's Musk that's versus Beeple. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I, I like mean, they write a rap that. battle in like two seconds. It's really awesome, man. <laughs> I would like to see that in real life. Yeah, you gotta, I know, me too. I want to see it in real life. So the next iteration of that for me is to try to figure out how to do that in a deep fake AI video model. <laughs> cool. Yeah. But I mean, look, if I was going to let ChatGPT write my entire article, that would be disingenuous. Yeah, of course. Unless I said, and also, I mean, first of all, these stupid softwares are so far out of date, they're incapable of really, you know, rendering something as significant as they will be in a very short period of time when they're scraping data from last five minutes ago or a minute ago rather than two years ago. But again, like, you know, you can use computers and technology to facilitate things. Sometimes the computers will do a better job than we could, but I still have a deep faith in humanity beyond chat GPT. Yeah. And when like when I asked the chat GPT to write my two paragraphs in the vein of my writing with my humor and irony, like I said, I mean, there was some salient bits that were very, very good. Yeah. But I still had to make it my own. Otherwise, in my mind as a creator, I want to be the author. I don't mind courting collaboration with people or computers, but in the end... I'm too much of a control freak to let loose it and let it go completely. But these things are overlooked at your own expense. Put it that way. Do you have a studio that you work out of? Or do you work at home? Or do you work for? I am an, a, a non-place artist. I work, I could work on a on a on a sidewalk sitting on a on a fire extinguisher. Yeah. I mean, which I was doing yesterday, which that's why I use that. Is that, example. Is that room you just showed me? Is that where you is that in your home? This is my office. Nice. So I have a, I have a studio like in my living room. It's yeah. 
literally, when I say it's wallpapered with my art, I mean like there is wallpaper of my art, of my writing oh, wow. in my living room. Oh, that's awesome. So I'd love to see really, <laughs> for, me, for me, the studio is my, is my laptop. I could be anywhere, but I'm in a, I'm in a room in my house where I do the majority of my research and writing and uh, thinking. What's just going on behind you here? You got like a big African spear tip behind you, and then a, a African. What is that thing there? Talking? I don't know what that is there. Yeah, it looks. That's like- a COVID. That's a COVID test. No, no, no. To the left, it's like a spear or something. It's that wooden post. No, on the other side. I'm sorry. Oh, you <laughs> I don't know what those are. They look like uh, they look like some kind of thing. Uh, somebody with See, a rhinoceros. What I love about art. What I love about art. I mean, for me, technology and art. It's this notion that was like you know, spearheaded by Duchamp. Anything could be art, and I think artists, artists, by using their eyes in such an acute fashion. Um, see things in a different vein. So you could look at the most mundane thing, which many people will take for granted, and you imbue it with all sorts of symbolism and meaning. So these are two two two-bar cores. (laughs) And and really, for me, it's, it's, it's a work about the painting itself. So there are some wigs that are glued on to a two by four painted on the side of the two by four is is a stripe of another kind of flesh paint. So that evokes a person. It has the color of flesh, different color on the side. And it's also a comment about what constitutes a painting. Yeah. And this is really relevant to what we're talking about. Yeah. And the other one has paper mache newspaper. Uh-huh. And then you can have photographs by Herbert Franca from 1953 and 1956. Wow. And... This is an amazing, people think that artists make a lot of money. This is a piece by an amazing American conceptual artist called Vito Acanci. And in these photographs, he's crushing a cockroach into his pubic hair. <laughs> Even though it's, he's most famous for creating a fake floor in a gallery and masturbating under the floor in a performance piece in, in a famous gallery in 1972 in New York City. And that was about trying to create art that couldn't be subsumed into the commercial system, art that was immaterial and art that couldn't be commodified. And this was in the early 70s. And these are issues that we're still contending with today. So the problem is that I say it, the only thing worse than being behind the time is to be too far ahead of the time like he was because people, the art world operates by consensus. Like he did a, a work about like branding and trademark Let me just show you. So he's biting his arm and making a mark in his arm called trademark, which was like the pattern of his teeth. Of course, everyone has a distinct dental footprint. So anyway, these these are the types of things that I really like to... I mean, art colors my life. I, I live deeply amongst it. And I used to joke that like when I was working with a load of, of artists curating them as well, I used to like I used to joke that they're sucking the air out of your mouth. They all think they're curing cancer. They're also self-important. And they're just looking over your shoulder to see if there's anyone more important to talk to than you. Oh, man. And now they've done a lot of clinical studies like at Harvard and various other um, institutions that say 
artwork and coexisting with it can have an ameliorative beneficial health effect, mm. like reducing anxiety and depression yeah. and lowering blood pressure. So for me, art is, it's a way of life and it, it gives meaning to my life. I love that, man. Is there any um, artists that are in the current art movement, the crypto art movement that you feel we should be watching? Is there anybody that well, stand, I mean, is there anybody like that like, stand out for you? Well, there's this Japanese woman called Spudniko. Okay, that's her computer name. Uh-huh. But I mean, she she's very young, maybe all of thirty right now. Uh-huh. But when she was in her mid mid twenties, she was fast tracked to become this mega art star by getting exhibitions at Museum of Modern Art in New York, Pompidou, and getting a position at MIT. And that just wasn't enough for her. This kind of like, you know, the way the art world just chews you up, looking for material for art fair after art fair to feed the market. Yeah. And she started, she made this like avatar of a woman who was menstruating, which became well known. And then she created a for profit company with um, a like a, a woman's healthcare startup, which was for profit but had very beneficial um, characteristics for an, a very ignored, underrepresented uh, element of society in Japan. And she created this company, which is really part of this meta art project she's doing. So she's just a genius and has done some incredible work, done some NFTs yeah. and other things. And now she's making this this company, which as far as I'm concerned, it's like a giant performative artwork. And then there's people like Operator, these two women I mentioned before. Uh, Kevin Abash makes some really fascinating work. I mean, there's so many. There's so many. Andreas Giesen is a generative artist whose work I love. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's so many. What's your um, thoughts on generative art? I mean, I think that there's 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 masterworks and 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 brilliant practitioners in every facet of the of the art world, yes. both right. digital, digital and analog. Yeah. And I mean, if you make again, like I just look at the end result and if it's art i love it so i think there's brilliant and profound generative artists like i just mentioned andreas giesen he's an accessible artist shows on like object.com with tezos makes digital works incorporating his digital um sculpture and they're extraordinary so i don't look at him and say he's a code artist he's a generative artist i just see amazing work Art is a very opportunistic and grabbing whatever's at hand to make something compelling as it relates to what came before it and how it will look five years from now is also one of the variables that need to be considered when you're analyzing art. Kenny, I've really enjoyed talking to you today, man. Uh, Thanks so much for for coming on and telling me, you know, sharing all your knowledge about the art world. Let me ask you a couple of things before I let you go. Um, One thing I wanted to ask you, is there anything that you're working on currently? Well, I'm I'm working on this project I mentioned, Open Book, which will which will um, drop sometime in the next couple of weeks with async. Yeah. Which is a it's not a sexy project. I'm incapable of making like overtly commercial things that 
has have wide <laughs> wide appeal to a mass audience. It's just not in yeah. my nature. I have this project open book with async, which will be these contributions from twenty amazing people, including the art critic Jerry Saltz and um, the the curator Hans Ulrich Ogrist, and then like Krista Kim and Sarah Meoas and all these amazing um, Ann Spalter, Claudia Hart, all these amazing yeah. artists are wow. like uh, yeah, just really influential and interesting artists in the crypto space. And that what I like is because that encapsulates everything I've I, I've stated, which is fostering conversations, collaborations, and communities. So, and then I'm working on my first ever museum exhibition in Linz in Austria at the Francesco Carolinum, which did probably one of the very wow. first museum exhibitions of NFTs back a few years ago called Proof of Art. So I'm like, I mean, look, I have an exhibition now and I said it's really difficult for me to make a living as an artist without resorting to other uh to to, yeah. to help augment my my the way I earn a living. Certainly I don't earn a living from teaching or writing and my NFT sales have dropped off significantly. But um you know through all of this I now have my first ever one person museum exhibition which is something I never would have dreamt would happen during my lifetime and yeah. that really that's in September and that like I that just you know like yeah. I said before yeah. you find your dream you find your passion and then you never give up and you never let anyone you know throw obstacles in the way of you accomplishing what it is you want to do and nobody as long as you're not you know breaking the law or although I've done that a few times as long as you're you know not hurting anyone um, you should be able to pursue, you have one life and life is so short and, and most people end up spending so much time doing things that they don't really care for, that they don't like. And, you know, that's really not the way that life should be. Life should be the things you do for work should be joyful on some level. And no matter how you define that, it somehow are a reflection of your innermost, you know, desires and passions. And that's really the life that I've created for myself or tried to. It's far from perfect. I get very disappointed and, and disillusioned, but like, you know, nothing will stop me. I love that, Kenny. I think that's a good place to tie it off, man. I'm going to put a link to your socials and your website in the show notes. So anybody listening to this can find you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you so much, Kenny. Thank you for being a guest today. And I look forward to you coming here. You'll love it. You'll get a good laugh. I, I would love to come see your place, man. I, I really would love the actual in-person tour of that place. Looking forward to <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Ledge. Thank you, Kenny, for being a guest this week. It was a very interesting conversation. If you want to know more about Kenny, I'm going to drop a link all his socials in the show notes below if you like this show please listen and rate and review me in the podcast platform of your choice five stars and a little review goes a long way to helping me be more visible on uh, podcast platforms thank you all for listening i'll see you again next week